And so we come in our Lenten journey to Luke's account of the crucifixion, which is the central passage in the Christian imagination. This is so much so that a few decades after this, when St. Paul was asking the Galatians to, uh, to re-internalize some central truths of their faith, which they had forgotten, one of the things that Paul said to them was, before you, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He was suggesting to them that by gazing on the cross, they would remember, re-internalize, um, recommit themselves to central truths of the faith that they had forgotten about. And so, if you're, I invite you here tonight to spend the next 14 or so minutes with me gazing at the cross and remembering the things that we need to remember. If you're a Christian, I hope that this will help you to, uh, to re-internalize some central things that are important to our faith. And if you're not a Christian, well, we are very, very glad that you're here. Gaze with me at the cross and you'll learn a lot about what Christianity is about. And so when we gaze at the cross, what is it that we see? Well, there's a lot of different things that you could see, but I fear that if we take it outside of the general context of Scripture, outside of the story of the Bible, that we'll gaze at the cross and perhaps we'll miss the point. We could look at the cross and we could see an instance of a great injustice perpetuated against an innocent man. And that would be true, because that is what happened. We could gaze at the cross and we could see a lesson about the beauty and the effectiveness of nonviolence as a means of resisting evil. That also would be true. We could look at the cross and we could see an example in the story of ancient imperialism, of brutality, of the violence that a pagan empire could commit against powerless people. That would be true. We could look at it and we could see in it a great work of literature in Luke's account, an account of pathos, of tragedy, of sadness that moves us on the inside. Well, it's that also, but you could be a non-Christian, you could be an atheist and look at this account that Luke has written and see all of those things in it, and the Christian message must be something more. The Christian message must address those questions that we ask ourselves when we're lying in bed at the middle of the night, we can't sleep, and we're staring at the ceiling, and we're asking ourselves the big questions of the universe. Who am I? Who are we? Why are we here? What's gone wrong with the world? Where is it all going? And what do we do about it now? These are questions that are fundamental to our existence, and it's apparent upon a close reading, that these are the questions that Luke is trying to address in this narrative. There's something bigger happening here than just the initial things that we might think about when we look at the cross. The answer that Luke provides to these questions is the crucifixion. Now, how does that work? Well, I think that we have to keep in mind the story of the Bible that Luke is taking as the background to everything, that Luke views as becoming climactic in the act of the crucifixion. It's interesting, when Luke does the genealogy of Jesus, he approaches it in a different way than Matthew does. When, when Matthew writes the genealogy of Jesus, he starts with Abraham and he takes it all the way down and he ends up at Jesus. When Luke does the same thing in Luke chapter 3, he starts at Jesus and he takes it backwards, not merely to Abraham, he takes it all the way back to Adam, 
all the way back to the very beginning. And that suggests that at some level, Luke views what's happening here as the continuation of a story that started at the very beginning of creation. If you're a Christian, you're familiar with the general contours of that story. God made the universe. He made it and he called it very good. And then at the Satan's prompting, Adam and Eve sinned and they messed everything up. They broke the universe. They brought into the universe violence and pain and sorrow and death. They marred God's good creation. And the rest of the Bible is the story of what God planned to do about it. He called Abraham as part of that plan, a daring but somewhat ambiguous plan, somehow, in some mysterious way, one day to deal with this evil that Adam and Eve brought into the world. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, were to be a nation of kings and priests, and somehow they also were to solve this problem. And the prophecy said that God would establish his king, his true king, and that when he did that, one day, that the blessings of this would flow not merely to the Israelites, but to the Gentiles also. But the plan went awry. The best king, King David, was a murderer. And then the Israelites fell into such evil, such wickedness, that God eventually had to deprive them of his presence and send them into exile. So what do you do when the solution to the problem becomes itself part of the problem? How do you proceed? Luke's answer to this question is the crucifixion. It's a mysterious answer. And it's an answer about which I could say very, 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 very many things, about which I've written many things, but I'm going to tell you about one of those things in the time that we have available. And then I'm going to offer you a final thought about what Jesus accomplished. One way to think about the answer that Luke makes to this question is to think about the notion of substitution. You say, where is that in this passage? Look at verses 27 through 30 of chapter 23. Luke is the only one who includes this exchange in his account. The other three Gospels don't, don't record this. And it's the last significant conversation that Jesus has before his death. He'll, he'll say some things after this. He'll make some interjections. But this is the last interactive conversation that he has anyone. And it's with these women who are following him. The women are, are weeping over him, right? They're mourning. They're sad. They're crying. And Jesus looks at them and he says... Don't cry about me. Cry about yourselves. Cry about Jerusalem. Cry about your children. A blessing on those who don't have any children. Now, that's a very odd sort of thing to say, especially for a Jewish man in the first century. Because in the Jewish imagination, uh, having children was about the best thing that could ever happen to you. When they blessed one another, they said things like, may you have a lot of children. And so you have Jesus here saying to this, these women, a blessing on you if you don't have children. It's an inversion of the typical way of thinking about things. So why would he say something like that? Well, I think the clue is in the last thing that he says to them in verse 31. He says, if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen to it when it's dry? What does he mean by that? Well, he means this. If the Romans are executing me, if they're executing the Prince of Peace, what are they going to do against people who are really guilty? 
Because you have to remember the political situation in first century Palestine. It's like a tinderbox. It's ready to be set on fire at any time. There was a significant number of, of the Jewish powers during that period of time that thought that the kingdom of God would come when they managed to kill all the Gentiles and leave Israel in charge of the entire world. That's how they thought it would arrive, by putting Israel in charge and by eliminating as many of the pagans as they could. This was a significant departure from their original vocation, right? Which was to bring the pagans to Yahweh and solve this problem that I was talking about at the beginning. But that's really the way that they thought it was going to happen. And so as part of this, they periodically engaged in these revolutionary activities against Rome. There was always some plot or some scheme going on whereby they were going to overthrow the Roman government and get rid of all the Gentiles and run everything. And Jesus is saying, I didn't do any of that, but it's coming. And when it does, what are they going to do? A similar sort of theme is there in the discourse about Barabbas, right? Which we read when we were reciting what happened. Luke provides the specific detail that Barabbas was in prison, not just for any old murder, but he was in prison for fermenting insurrection. He was one of the terrorists who was engaged in these plots to get rid of the Romans. They caught him, they threw him in jail. And, and so when it comes time to release a prisoner, and, and Pilate says to them, you can have Jesus, you can have Barabbas, and the crowd screams, we want Barabbas, forget Jesus, what happens? Well, Barabbas goes free. Don't you see how Jesus is serving as a substitute? Barabbas was actually guilty of the crime of rebellion against Rome. And Jesus is executed for the crime of rebellion against Rome, even though he didn't, who's rebelled. What did the sign say on the cross? It said the king of the Jews, right? This is one who's, who's rebelling. He didn't do it, but he was executed for it. And the same sorts of thing happens with, with the accusers, right? They're, the accusers are saying, Jesus says he's the king of the Jews. He's engaged in insurrection. When in fact, the accusers themselves had engaged in insurrection, were engaging in it, and were about to engage in it again. And that's the point that Jesus makes to the women. Because Jesus knew that having rejected his way of peace, the hatred that Israel felt for the Gentiles was going to boil over. And that's exactly what happened in the decades after this. In AD 70, they put together a huge insurrection, a huge rebellion against Rome. And the Romans sent the armies and they wiped Jerusalem off the map. They destroyed the civilization. It happened exactly the way that Jesus said it was going to happen. Don't you see that, it, that Jesus was taking their place? But it doesn't stop there either. Because remember that Israel's vocation was to rescue humanity. Was to fix this problem that Adam and Eve had, had caused. To undo the damage that Adam did. Remember what God said to Abraham? Remember how he said, Through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed? If Israel rebelled against Rome, well, haven't all of us rebelled against God? But Jesus didn't. If Israel failed to turn the other cheek, if Israel's desire was to see violence done on their enemies, whom they should have been trying to bring to Yahweh, well, who are we to talk about violence? We who just in the last hundred years have come up with the Holocaust and World War II and Jim Crow and revolutions of various sorts. But Jesus, when he was abused, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not 
what they do. If Israel failed in its vocation to be the light of the world and to draw people to God, well, haven't we also failed in our vocation to be good stewards of the world around us? Haven't we brought into it nothing but violence and greed and destruction? But Jesus didn't do that. In fact, Jesus healed it. Jesus even healed the ear of the fellow who was sent to arrest him. If Jesus becomes the substitute for Israel, he ultimately becomes the substitute for us. He becomes the substitute for all mankind, for you and for me. If we would only ask him, like the fellow did who was crucified next to him. Jesus takes upon himself and absorbs in himself the full evil of the world as it bears down upon him. The physical evil and the abuse that he suffered at the hands of the soldiers. The relational evil because all of his close friends abandoned him and left him. The political evil of Rome and its brutal empire. And what kind of governor anyway says, I say the guy is innocent, but I'm going to execute him anyway. The social evil of all the disease and poverty and inequality and brokenness, the religious evil of people who thought that they were close to God, but reality were very, very far away from God. He takes all of this evil unto himself. He absorbs it. The evil does to him the worst that it can do. It tortures him and kills him, and he beats it because Easter is coming, and that's the message of Christianity. I close with a final thought here about what's happening because it's important for us to realize that even as much as we think of Jesus as our personal substitutes, and he is, that the issue is deeper and broader than that. Behind all of the evil that we we commit, behind all of the evil that we, we feel sometimes in ourselves, there is a force, isn't there? There is, a, there is a dark power beyond, behind the Pharisees, behind Rome, behind us even, that's spurring the world to greater and greater evil and destruction. And a theology of substitution is incomplete without dealing with the power behind the scenes, without dealing with the power behind the evil that's in each one of us. And I want to suggest to you that the dilemma of the Bible and the dilemma of Tolkien's great work, The Lord of the Rings, is in fact the same dilemma. And the dilemma is this. What is to be done about the Dark Lord? Now, in the climactic scene of the book, the book, not the movie, which was changed. uh, No, bear with me. I'm going to explain this to you. In the book, in the climactic scene, Frodo is about to cast the one ring into the fire, right? And when he does that, the Dark Lord is going to be destroyed, and evil is going to be vanquished. And he's going through all this stuff to get to the point where he can do that. Uh, And when he gets there and he stands on the edge of that pit, he finds that he can't do it, right? The evil has gotten inside of him, and he says... He says, I've come, but I do not now choose to do that thing that I came to do. The ring is mine. He embraces the evil. And then at that point, Gollum, he wants the ring too, right? He's been following him. He attacks Frodo. He bites Frodo's finger off and he steals the ring. And he's got it there. Now, this is where the movie departs from the book. And I think in a way that Tolkien would have not appreciated Because at this point in the movies, Frodo and Gollum start fighting, and eventually Frodo pushes Gollum over into the edge. In the book, Gollum starts dancing around with the ring, and then he falls in without Frodo doing it. In the book, Frodo is on the ground, defeated, crying, half dead. How did Gollum fall? 
Well, Tolkien provides the answer to that question in a letter that was written towards the end of his life. And Tolkien says in the letter that he is certain that when Gollum was dancing there with the ring, that Eru Iluvatar, which is Tolkien's name for God in his mythology, Tolkien says that he is certain that God pushed him in. He says, one must face the fact Frodo failed. The power of the evil in this world is not finally resistible by incarnate creatures, however good they are. The other power took over at that point, the writer of the story, that one ever-present person who is never absent and never named. And I suggest to you that that's what we're reading about when we read about the crucifixion. We're reading about Yahweh finally himself returning to Zion after Israel had failed, after we had failed, after there was no other way to vanquish the evil, that God himself came and did it. He beat it on the cross. He intervened directly. And he defeated the dark Lord. That's what happened at the crucifixion. And Easter is coming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.